well, well. Shopping for a car? Yep. Carvana made financing a car as smooth as can be. Oh, yeah? I got pre-qualified instantly and had real terms personalized just for me. Doesn't get much smoother than that. Well, I got to browse thousands of car options on Carvana, all within my budget. Doesn't get much smoother than that. It does. I actually wanted a car that seemed out of my range, but I was able to add a cosigner and found my dream car. It doesn't get much... Oh, it gets smoother. It's getting delivered tomorrow. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get pre-qualified today. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we're starting to get into off-season mode here on On The Verge as we're going to take some questions from listeners about the Orioles' plans, both at the major league level and the minor leagues, going into 2024. We're also going to talk about some reported changes to the Orioles' coaching staff that just came out Wednesday night per Rock Cabado over at Masson. But before we get into that news, we're going to talk about one of the big developments of the past week, which is that three Orioles have been named finalists at their respective positions for American League Gold Glove Awards this year. There are Adley Rutzman at catcher, Ryan Malcastle at first base, and Austin Hayes out in left field. None of these players have won a Gold Glove in the past, nor have they been nominated for one before. So possibly several firsts for these players this offseason. And Bob, I'll start with you here. Just your general reaction to the Orioles having three Gold Glove nominees and the fact that it's these three players. I don't think I would have been surprised with three nominees. I definitely would not have predicted these positions and these players. But Adley Rushman, that makes the most sense. Figured he'd be a finalist between what him and Jonah Heim. And I'm sure there's someone like Martin Maldonado or something like that that'll I didn't even look at the list other than Alejandro Kirk. <laughs> there you go. Third. All right. He didn't hit this year. Really, he was a good fielder, according to the Gold Glove finalists. But um, yeah, Adley Rutschman, that makes a lot of sense to me. I wouldn't be surprised if he if he won. I feel like it's an award that's almost as much about name recognition as it is about fielding. If you want the pure fielding, uh, you know, Gold Glovers, go to the Fielding Bible Awards, which Jorge Mateo won last year, I believe. If I was going to guess the other two, I would have said Cedric Mullins and Gunnar Henderson, but they're nowhere to be found. So Austin Hayes, he he was better this year in the field than the last year or two. Um, he made some excellent plays. He plays really well in uh, left field in Baltimore, Baltimore, which is tough to do. Um, so n- no real issues there. It's cool that he's a Gold Glove finalist and an all-star for the first time in the same year maybe in his last year in an Orioles uniform. We'll get into that during the mailbag. And Ryan Mountcastle at first base, I mean, I feel like he was better defensively last year, and he missed a lot of time this year with the injury, but, you know, uh, good for him. I think he's improved uh, defensively at that position since, obviously, he came up as a shortstop and then third baseman and then a left fielder, and then now he's a first baseman slash DH, so... Yeah, it's cool. Um, Maybe we'll get a surprise win like Ramon Arias last year. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, as a if I'm a player, I obviously would want this award. Um, yeah, you know, I'm sure it's a good testament to all the hard work you put in, especially if you're someone who prides yourself on your defense. As a fan, I just don't care about the Gold Glove Awards. If I'm being completely honest, it is a popularity contest. Uh, but uh, I will say that I, I think it is really awesome to see these three guys. It is shocking, like you said. You, you imagine Cedric Mullins being a finalist, but he was not. Uh, obviously, you mentioned the Mateo thing last year, so not surprised that we see an Oriole get snubbed here on these final lists. But you know, 
you talk about Ryan Mountcastle. I I remember going to Frederick Keys games uh, when I first back at another website that when I first started talking and writing about Orioles prospects and watching Ryan Mountcastle that shortstop prospect. I would have never imagined years later I'd be talking about Ryan Mountcastle, the Gold Glove finalist at first base in the major leagues. And I remember watching him in Norfolk when they moved him to first base. And I remember coming on the show and us talking about his defense at first base. And you could you could see it in his early on when he made that switch, you could see him like go over in his mind. All right, ball went here. I need to do this. I need to do that. You could just see him play all of it out in his mind before he actually carried it out. And then as the year progressed, I know we made comments over and over again that he really did improve drastically very quickly over there at first base. So it's really cool to see kind of all the hard work pay off. Now you're a Google finalist. We'll see if he wins it looking at who he's up against. I don't know. Um, Hayes, cool. Uh, he did have a, a better year. Uh, it's He did master, like Bob said, he mastered that left field area in Camden Yards, so that was good to see. I don't think, looking at some of the dinosaurs that vote for this award, and even some of the other guys who vote, and or writers who vote for this, they, they look at, if they don't look at offensive numbers first and just go based off that, they might say, all right, I'm going to be hip and go to outs above average, because that's a stat I've heard of. And you look at the leaderboard, and it's like Stephen Kwan on the left field like runs away with it. I think he was like eight or nine leading the way. Hayes is what two or three outs above average. So I don't think Hayes is going to win it just for those reasons. I do think Adley can win it, uh, and that would be pretty awesome. Uh, he's overall, I think, just across the board, he's one of the best catchers in baseball, defensively speaking as well. This team made a deep run. This team was a 100-plus win team. Yes, he's going up against Jonah Heim and, and uh, Kirk there, but – Heim being in the World Series, I'm sure will help his case. But the Orioles surprised a lot of people this year. And the pitching, for the most part, this season was good with Adley behind the plate. So maybe that gives him a boost. I'd say Adley probably has a good shot of winning this. But the other two guys can hope for the best, I guess. I want to talk about Adley specifically for a minute because I find his case really interesting. Uh, If you really pick the data apart, and honestly, we could spend half an episode or a whole episode talking about Adley Rutzman's stat cast data for his defense. There are some things that Rutzman does really well. He's great at blocking pitches. He's a pretty good pitch framer. Maybe not elite, but pretty good. But his numbers on throwing runners out this year were not good. Um, And that was something that was apparent for pretty much the whole season. And I went back today and I read an article that Andy Koska wrote at the Baltimore Banner back in July. And I would encourage fans to seek it out because if they haven't already read it, because even though a lot of the data that's in there now is out of date, a lot of the same lessons apply, which is that there are some things that Rutzman doesn't do well, but there's also some things that he does pretty well to try to throw runners out. And certain factors beyond his control might prevent that runner from being caught stealing, especially in a year where stolen bases were up and runners, because of the fact that pitchers can only throw over twice, were probably able to get better jumps this year than they have in the past. When I looked at it a little bit before we came on the air, what stood out to me was that Rutzman's arm strength in terms of miles per hour is very good. That's not the issue. The issue might be some combination of accuracy and transfer time getting the ball out of the glove. But it doesn't feel, if you want to look long-term, I don't think Adley Rutzman's going to struggle this much with the run game every year. No. And, I mean, even if you just look at, 
the publicly available numbers that we do have access to. I mean, he's up there among the league leaders in a lot of defensive metrics from behind the plate. And I think that's a good point about this year with the emphasis on trying to get more stolen bases in the game. Maybe some voters look at his, you know, caught stealing percentage. Maybe it is lower, not very good and say, uh, we'll give that one a pass, right? You look at his blocking, you look at his framing, you look at all his other numbers. They're very, very good. He did an excellent job of leading the young rotation. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt there uh, and maybe give him this award. Maybe that's, that's an advantage to him. But I think just looking broad, more broadly at Adley and his development and his future here in Baltimore, like that was something getting runners at second base was something that he struggled with a lot coming up through the minors. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. I know a lot of people were talking about it this year and it's like, that's, it's nothing new. This is what he did in the minors uh, as well. So it's, you hope to see him improve on that, but as far as yeah, the voting goes, maybe that's uh with all the new rule changes this year and emphasis, some writers maybe uh, look the other way there. Yeah. And for as quote unquote bad as it is, I mean, he's still 65th percentile and caught stealing above average. It's a zero. So basically he's, basically average breaks even there and his pop time is 81st percentile his arm is pretty good so maybe it's just an accuracy thing and you know maybe rushing the throw never didn't help with that this year but you know i'll take the blocks above average especially after watching pedro severino for a couple of years uh 85th percentile there and framing 84th percentile i think those are more important at least now before the robo umps are instituted or the challenge system so yeah, I think he's got a, a very good case to win the award just based off, you know, the publicly made available numbers, like Nick said. So, Nick, just to follow up on that point, I think Bob brought up something kind of interesting, which is that catching defense is pretty nuanced. You may have a guy that's great at one thing, but not as good in the other areas. So would you rather have a catcher like Adley, who is going to frame pitches and block balls in the dirt, but not necessarily be great at controlling the run game, or a catcher who's going to be the opposite of that, where the pitch framing and the blocking of pitches in the dirt leaves a little bit to be desired, but more often than not, or at least more than most catchers in the major leagues, he's going to throw runners out. Mm, give give me the give me Adley as he is now. Um, I think Major League Baseball is probably going to continue to find ways to get more stolen bases in the game teams. We talk about the Orioles themselves and with, you know, drafting Enrique Bradfield and look at what they were doing down at Aberdeen this year with all the stolen bases we've talked about on the show. Are the Orioles preparing for kind of the next phase of, of, of baseball, what that's going to look like in the future. And you might say, all right, well, wouldn't you want somebody who's better at catching guys stealing then? I, I just think it's kind of going to be a wash where stolen, more stolen bases are just going to be part of the game. Uh, and so I'd rather have the guy who can work with the pitching staff better and make his pitchers better to keep those runners off the base paths uh, in the first place. I quickly found a pretty good example of the reverse Adley Rutschman. And what do you know? It's his backup, James McCann, who was 73rd percentile in caught stealing above average and was 13th percentile in blocks and 11th percentile in pop time and uh, slightly below average 46th percentile in framing. So you want uh, James McCann behind the plate or Adley Rutschman? I, I know who I'm picking. Go back, and we'll talk about some of the players that were left off for a minute. Um, Cedric Mullins, my initial reaction was that I was surprised and a little disappointed to not see him. But when you look at the three finalists in center field, I wouldn't take any of them out for Mullins. 
Uh, it's just, you know, the fact of the way things went this year, which is that three of the best defensive players in baseball play center field in the American League. And so, unfortunately, you're not going to have room for everyone, and Mullins dropped off on that list. So it's tough break for him, but when you're going up against Kevin Kiermaier, Luis Robert Jr., and Julio Rodriguez, that's an elite group of defenders. Um, with Gunnar Henderson, I would love to know the thought process of someone who saw Henderson in April and May versus someone who saw him late in the year. Because so much of this is based on reputation. And let's face it, if you saw Gunnar Henderson play either third base or shortstop early in the year, you probably wouldn't have come away very impressed. Yet by the end of the year, he was probably the Orioles' best overall defensive infielder. So I I guess my takeaway is that next year, he's probably going to win the gold glove at one of those positions because he'll have that reputation time under his belt. But that wasn't there for him this year. He just didn't have the reputation that you need to make this list. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the best shortstops in baseball. I feel like he was playing like that, at least towards the end of the year. Um, and honestly, it was weird how it seemed like he played better at shortstop than third base, but I feel like he got better at both. I would have expected to see him at least in the the new like utility player category, but not to be. Um, it's okay. The uh, Gold Glove has snubbed many of Orioles shortstop in the past, and... Uh, yeah, I think it's true that the accuracy on his throws were way worse in the beginning of the year. He's got an incredible arm. He's 84th percentile in arm strength. I think he's the top Oriole in that that category, just above Austin Hayes. And yeah, I I think it's exactly what you said. You know, he got better as the year went on, so maybe that played a role in it. Yeah, and if you just look at the numbers, I mean, and again. <laughs> These voters and, and people saying these awards aren't going into the minute details like we are. They're not watching Gunner and his development as the season's progressed. And you just look at some of the baseline numbers, even the guys in the utility per, uh, section there, like Zach McKinstry, who's it? Zach McKinstry, Taylor Walls, and Mauricio Dubon were the three finalists there. I mean, they all have pretty high outs above average. I think Gunner was at what, zero outs above average uh, when I saw it. But you know that could play a role in it. But Regardless of the award and whether he's a finalist or not, it's why I don't care. This is a guy who there are a thousand different moving pieces, and we're going to talk about some of this later tonight. But whether it's shortstop or third base, I really don't care what position Gunner plays at. He is one of those for this team for the next many years, hopefully. So that's all I need to know. And Gold Glove finalists, this is a programming note here, will be announced on Sunday, November 5th. Uh, so we've got a few weeks to wait, or actually a little less than a week, right right around the week, to wait for the Gold Glove Award winners to be announced. And if an Oriole wins, we'll probably spend some time on the show talking about that. But we're going to have plenty of things to talk about this offseason. One of the bi- first big personnel news dropped tonight when Roccobato over at Masson reported that the Orioles are making some changes to the pitching side of their major league coaching staff for the 2024 season. Chris Holt remains in the Orioles organization, but is not going to serve as a major league pitching coach next year. However, he is going to maintain his responsibilities as director of pitching, which gives him basically a holistic uh, supervision over the pitching program in both the major leagues and the minor leagues. Meanwhile, assistant pitching coach Darren Holmes is not returning to the Orioles organization which is going to create possibly a second opening on the staff if the Orioles decide to go with two pitching coaches next year. 
Cabado adds that the Orioles are expected to re- retain the rest of their major league coaching staff from the 2023 season, but we know that there is going to be some turnover there. So, Bob, I'll start with you here. Um, is this kind of the reaction to the fact now that Chris Holt is going to stay in the organization, but the Orioles really reinforcing the fact that his you know blueprint is what goes throughout the entire organization, not just the major league level. Meanwhile, Holmes, who I think played a pretty key part in the Orioles pitching staff's turnaround over the last couple of years, is not coming back. Yeah, first, the Holt thing, I, I love it. I love him in this role. I know he was already in this role, but I feel like it's it's got to be hard to to really focus on that when you're also the major league pitching coach. So I love the fact that he's going to be able to just, you know, go up and down this organization from the top to the bottom and get everyone on the same page, which I'm sure he was already doing, but just really buckle in there. I love that. Also opens up an opportunity for our friend of the show, Justin Ramsey, to potentially end up in the major league coaching staff, which would be cool to get Ryan Fuller and him in there. We've been, you know, fans of theirs for quite some time now. And I don't know what the deal is with Darren Holmes, if it's like they didn't love what he was doing or it was just time to move on because they see better options. But I I hope he gets a job. He's definitely played a pretty big role here. And uh, I know he was promoted to assistant pitching coach rather than just bullpen coach at some point. So maybe the two new guys coming in will be a, you know, main pitching coach and then an assistant pitching coach. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe, you know, you, they go and get like a veteran pitching coach that, you know, Elias and them have worked with before potentially. I'm not sure who it would be off the top of my head, but, and then they bring in Justin Ramsey as that assistant pitching coach who could potentially become the main guy eventually down the road. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I'm, a little bit surprised if Freddie Gonzalez is back and Buck Britton is not been promoted to the major league staff, but I mean, you can't really argue with the job that Freddie has done either. Not like I wanted him to be fired, but yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. As uh, the first domino to fall in this long and hopefully fruitful off season. Yeah. It kind of goes with what they're putting guys in different roles. They're adding guys like Cody Ashey uh, kind of working with lower levels. And then now as some of these younger prospects have moved up, you see Ashey working more with the major league side of things. Justin Ramsey wasn't just triple a pitching coach. I mean, he was also, I think upper minors was, is like his official thing. So kind of working a little bit of everything, but as far as the Holt move, like I love it. Honestly, I love it as well. His impact on the team has been tremendous it's been fun to listen to pitchers in this organization who, who we've had on the show rave about the impact that Holt has had. Usually they like to bring him up kind of unprompted a lot of times. And even I remember getting years ago when we kind of first started this thing, getting a DM from a pitcher currently in this organization who just said like Holt is a genius, very special mind. And you guys are going to enjoy watching him, watching what he can do. And that was just like, wow, like these guys, the players are, are fully bought into what he's doing. Um, we've continued to see progress under his coaching staff at the major league level as well. Like this group is fully bought into his style and his teachings. And if he can expand that across the entire farm system, I think you're going to see the pitching prospects in the system take huge leaps forward and something they've already been doing, but you got guys like, like at the AAA level, Justin R. Brewster, Kate Pova, Chase McDermott, right? They're right there ready to hopefully take that next leap into the major leagues. Then you look at Bowie's roster and that, that roster that end of the year is loaded with top 30 guys, uh, guys who like Bronovich and peak and Brandon young who were top 30, but injuries kind of derailed them a little bit. They're back and healthy. 
You've got international guys starting to pop Luis De Leon, David Cruz, Juan Nunez, these guys. And then you look at the, the draft this year, they drafted 13 pitchers. And uh, a lot of the high floor, you know, the Teddy Sharkies, guys that could move fast, high floor relievers. And then your Baumeisters, your Kiefer Lords, your high ceiling potential starting pitching prospects. I think they went heavy pitching, probably anticipating a move like this. So now, like the hitting side of things, that's that's it's not done, but like that's been laid out. It's very good. It's producing Adley and Gunner and Kowser and Kershide. It's producing all of these guys. That works. Whatever they're doing on the hitting side of things, that's proven that it's working. Uh, the pitching side of things, it's that was secondary, and I think now they're right there. And this Holt move could be what kind of takes all of this to the next level. And they've got all the talent in place now. We know exactly what type of pitchers the Orioles like to target. Uh, they've built that pipeline up, ready to take it to the next level now. You know, send Justin Ramsey up to the major leagues, like Bob said. Make him the the pitching coach of the major league level. Have Holt work across the farm system. you got some other amazing guys, Forrest Herman, Austin Miney, so many others in this organization. Like This is going to be the year of the pitchers down in the farm system for the Orioles. I 100% believe that. I think there's one thing we've learned from guests that we've had on the show and is that this pitching development plan that the Orioles have is not some patchwork from level to level. Uh, it's one cohesive, holistic plan that they have for these players, which kind of leads me to believe, and this is just speculation here, but it kind of leads me to believe that at least one of these two open spots at the major league level is going to go to someone internal. Um, and that if it is someone from the outside, it's going to be someone that fits the Orioles mold and that they know can teach the things that they want to teach. Because while, you know, there's a lot, there was a lot of progress at the major league level this year, we know that there is still some development to happen. Uh, not to mention the importance of getting guys like John Means back into a regular routine of throwing every five days. So that's sort of how I envision this playing out. And I think that the Orioles can find a way to make it work without any sort of rough pass at the major leagues because you don't have Holt in the dugout every day. Yeah, it's. I, I think it definitely is going to be someone internal, at least one person. Uh, and I do like what Bob said. Maybe you bring in the older veteran who has experience with the front office. They know what he's about, and the front office knows that they will mesh well with this organization and mesh well with Ramsey as he learns uh, his new role at the major league level. But because we've seen so many coaches and instructors and behind the scenes personnel move up over the last few years, I just it it makes a lot of sense, All right? So yeah, and I mean, just the 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 pictures that they're building, like shout out to I was listening to uh, Just Baseball podcast, um, great great podcast uh but they were talking one of their episodes during this this past series um i think it was one of the christian javier starts when he like shoved against texas right and they were talking about look he threw all fastballs right? and he doesn't have big fastball velo he's like 90 what 90 92 fastball velo guy but he dominated the rangers who you know everyone knows they were like the slide they were the team that could hit the slider so yeah throw fastballs right but you're throwing a 90-92 mile an hour fastball 65-70% of the time against one of the top offenses in baseball. How is Javier able to have some success? He's got this that crazy, you know, hoppy fastball, right? That was getting the swings and miss. That's what the Orioles are building here uh, internally with, with this pitching staff. And so I think just, just to kind of take that as a whole, because 
again, you know, when people make comments about this organization lacking pitching talent, it still irks me to this day. Um, I think it's there and we're going to see it take that next step this year. And we're seeing examples of guys, that exact type of pitcher the Orioles are trying to accumulate and build and develop. Like we're seeing them have success in key spots at the major league level. Hopefully it works here in Baltimore. Is Leo Mazzone available? Yeah, it's getting kind of tiring to hear people complain about the Orioles pitching program, and hopefully we don't have to have that sort of fatigue in the offseason. So speaking of fatigue, uh, that's a great segue there. And just speaking of you know Chris Holt and his special mind, and remember when he had Justin Arbruster on as well, and he referred to Forrest Herman, speaking of Forrest Herman as well, as, as a wizard. And it's like wizard magic, right? Great minds. Um, I think that's a perfect segue into <laughs> a product that we are happy to introduce to all of our listeners here. And one that we think a lot of people will find highly beneficial. And that is magic mind. I don't know about you two, but like everyday life at like two or three in the afternoon, I'm at the office. I start to lose it. I can't focus. I typically find myself walking down the street to one of the many amazing local coffee shops we have here in town for that afternoon pick me up. But Honestly, that works for like 30 minutes or so. And I get home. There's no time to recharge, decompress from the day because no matter how tired I am, I have two toddlers at home and they do not care. Uh, They are hungry. They need baths. They need food. uh, They need to be entertained. And I want to have that energy to play with them after a long day. I used to be heavy in the energy drink streets, but when I started getting the shakes from some brands and even had a crazy like paranoia experience <laughs> hardcore with some new brand that a coworker recommended I try. I knew I had to stop relying on those to get me through the day. I knew I need to try something different. And I've been drinking these small magic mind shots each morning before my morning cup of coffee. And I can tell you guys from personal experience, these drinks work. To be completely honest, I was skeptical and wasn't expecting anything, but that afternoon drag is gone. I haven't gone for the afternoon coffee in almost two weeks now. I'm drinking less coffee overall. I feel awake in the afternoons. I get home from work and my wife will gladly come up here and testify to this one. I'm happier in the afternoons when I get home. And the best part of all, Magic Mind, is it tastes really good. And I do look forward to drinking one every morning. It's made of all natural ingredients designed to improve your memory, give you that natural energy boost and stress less, including matcha, lion's mane mushrooms. It's no sugar, nut-free. It's vegan, keto, and paleo-friendly, all of that. Trust me, if I'm sitting here talking about this, saying I like to drink it, it's good because you give me something green and tell me it's healthy. I'm not going to drink it. I'm not touching it. But Magic Mind honestly changed my mind about that. It is honestly delicious. And everyone listening, actually, right now, you can try Magic Mind for yourself by going to magicmind.com slash verge. That's magicmind.com slash verge, V-E-R-G-E. Use our code verge20. That's the number two O. You can save 56% on a subscription to Magic Mind or get 20% off a one-time order if you happen to already be a subscriber, you can still go to magicmind.com slash verge, use our code verge20 and get the discount on your next subscription payment. That's an awesome deal. Uh, we're only running this because I stand by the product after personally using it. My wife is also now hooked. I came home yesterday. There was another package waiting. She signed up for a subscription. Magic Mind comes with a 100% money back guarantee. So no questions asked if there's any issues, no risk whatsoever. Give it a try today. Start feeling refreshed immediately. Go to magicmind.com slash verge with our discount code verge20 for up to 56% off a subscription. I'd get the 30 pack. That's just me. I think it's a great deal. Uh, it's great value. It's a great product and I highly recommend. Well, I think that 
Speaking of thinking clearly, um, we turn to our listeners this week, and I think that their minds are already turned to the offseason. They've got some pretty clear priorities that they have in mind about what the Orioles should be doing. And I'm going to start here with a question that is entirely about off-the-field matters, but something that's on the minds of a lot of Orioles fans, which comes from Ben Dewarst. You're the Orioles. How would you use the $600 million in stadium upgrades from the state of Maryland? Provided, of course, that the Orioles finalize their apparent 30-year. Well, I'll start off by saying, Ben, you are the worst. Um, no, shout out to Orioles Status One on Twitter. Good job over there. Give them a follow if you're not already. I'm sure you are. Um, the only thing I, that jumps to mind for me is they need a new sound system in there. They really need to just, I don't know, gut out the old sound system and just the music and the the announcers and the commentary and Adrian Robinson just boom through the, through the stadium. I feel like they could do something with the out of town scoreboard in right field, but I feel like Zach, you go to a lot more games than either me or Nick. So I'm, I'm curious to see what you think. Well, you're also asking a former sports business editor, how to spend $600 million. So this could take a while, but quick priorities for Camden Yards. I think you touched on the big one, which is the audio and video production are pretty inadequate. This uh, ballpark, if it was built today, would probably be about 10,000 fixed seats smaller. Maybe you don't need to cut that number off, but I think you do need more flex spaces. Uh, the club level could definitely use some sprucing up. Um, there's really no view of the field when you're inside the club level. And the spaces themselves, they're fine, but they could be updated a little bit more. And then there's, of course, player facilities that we're never going to see, but that I'm sure need to be updated. And I think if the Orioles want to get a sense of how fans respond to improvements, just look at that bar above the batter's eye in center field. That's crowded even when there's, you know, a Tuesday night against the Royals and there's nobody in the ballpark. That spot of Cannon Yards is crowded. So fans do respond to those sort of things. So that's that's kind of what I expect. I just hope that whatever the end result is, it doesn't change the nature of the ballpark too much uh but i'm open to any improvements and you know if one of them is that my seat above the concourse beyond the left field wall goes then so be it it's gonna be tough but so be it yeah i'm probably the last person you want to ask this question to because i'm not the local guy and rarely get to make it up to baltimore i i like all those honestly and also just when i go to games like i just love to get there as early as possible sit absorb the vibes and drink all the Maryland craft beer that I uh, can uh, before I you know, can make sure I can make it for a full nine innings of a baseball game. But um, honestly, you need to have a magic mind <laughs> before the game starts. Yeah. A couple of them uh, when I'm downing like five IPAs during the game. Uh, my thought was like just the video board. I said video board slash sound system as well. Like the current board is, you know, it's, it's smaller. You can go big. I'm a Cowboys fan, so like I got Jerry World and that monstrosity down there uh, at Texas Stadium or whatever the stadium's called now. Um, but I like the bigger video board. Uh, anything to add, kind of that that in-game vibe for fans, make it more entertainment. You know, even think of like those left field upper seats that you know are usually empty, right? Or they usually don't open those up. And like Zach said, a lot of the newer ballparks are so much smaller. And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't don't, I mean, 
don't the Orioles have one of the bigger stadiums in terms of seats seating in Major League Baseball? So if you got rid of those, even you took those out and replaced it with maybe like a bigger bar area or a secondary bar area or like the splash zone, move that up there and just have some crazy party area up there. I I don't know. Um, But yeah, there are definitely some things I think you can do to kind of just boost the entertainment value of games to bring more fans in because the the team is good. The team will bring fans in, but if you can also make it a fun destination, kind of little party place for, you know, the younger crowd even, or the the non-baseball fans who still want to hang out with their friends, um, that's that's a good way. You're talking about bringing more money into the stadium. That's that's how you're going to do it. Yeah, those are good ideas. Maybe maybe they can recreate the Las Vegas sphere and get a completely immersive experience out there in uh, Camden Yards. So we go, I'll take the next one. Um, Kenneth. Kenneth has a question, and it is a three-parter here, as he says. Thoughts on Jackson Holiday next year? Is he breaking camp too early? Or is he is breaking camp too early for him to come up? Is coming up midseason a waste of a draft pick, assuming he would win rookie of the year? And is September call-up way too late in the season? Zach, what do you think about Jackson Holiday next year? That's a great question because it does feel like holidays in that almost sort of no man's land where spring training might be too early for him, especially if you don't feel like the power has really come along yet. Um, You bring him up in June or July, that could be a waste of a draft pick. So then you go to the third option, which is September. I don't know that that's necessarily going to be too late unless your infielders kind of underperform. Um, and it depends on who you have in place. But if, if I had a guess right now, the ideal scenario for the Orioles is that Holiday is maybe up in May, where if they don't feel like he's good to go out of spring training, maybe he makes, you know, still makes it early enough to win rookie of the year. But I don't know. It's a tough question to answer, which is kind of why when it comes to Holiday, I really want to see how he looks in spring training because. If you had to ask me based on what I saw at the tail end of Norfolk, is he going to break camp? I would say no, but I also would not have expected him to hit the ground running at the beginning of the 2023 season and really barely be challenged through four levels of the minor leagues. So this is someone who can clearly clearly get better in a hurry. If he comes up in May and wins the rookie of the year, we still don't get a draft pick. So that's another interesting dilemma there. I think there's no chance they wait until September to bring him up because this guy <laughs> improves so fast. He works so hard. You already see videos of him working with his brother, working out on, on things. So I think I give less than 3% chance that it's next September. I'd say like a 50% chance he makes it out of camp, but that's very dependent on the work that he does over the off season and how he looks in spring training. And then, you know, a little bit less than 50% that he comes up anywhere between May and July, which, you know, it's not impossible if he's just, if they determine that he's not ready and that, you know, even if he's up from day one, that he's going to struggle out of the gate as he adapts and adjusts that to the point where, he probably won't win rookie of the year because there's pretty good contenders for that award next year. Um, and maybe they just keep him down for a couple months to work on things. And then, you know, if he breaks out and wins the award anyway, Hey, at least you're blocking another team from 
from getting that extra draft pick. So, yeah, I think it's either going to be opening day if he makes the, the right improvements. And the same goes for Kobe Mayo on this too as well. I think he's another option for that. Um, but otherwise, I think it'll be midseason. I do not think they're going to wait till the to the end of next year. I'm I'm just going to say he's breaking camp with the team. Honestly, I'm going to stay high on it. Like Unless this team adds a huge infield piece, which I don't see them doing, like, I think Holiday will be on the opening day roster. Like I think you just kind of forget about his age. I don't care how old he is. That's irrelevant, honestly. The, the fact that you know, this belief that the Orioles slow play, slow play prospects, like that's not true. They don't. They, they're pretty aggressive with these guys. When they show they're ready, they push them up. Jackson Holiday played at four levels uh, this past season as a 19-year-old. And it doesn't matter if he's 19, 18, 22. If he's ready, he's going to be ready. Um, he wasn't supposed to play in Del Marva when he got drafted, but he had 57 plate appearances that year. He started last year back in Del Marva, ended the year at Norfolk, four levels. Yeah, the, the numbers in Norfolk weren't great. And he had, what, almost 100 plate appearances in Norfolk. The overall numbers weren't great, but this kid still walked 18% of the time. He still didn't strike out a ton. He had a couple of home runs. They kept him in big league camp last year very late in the process i think and even at the end of this past year there was real talk about him being called up possibly being called up at the end of this past season and then even talk about could he be on the playoff taxi squad roster like you're not going to do that if you didn't think he could provide value to this organization a, a playoff team and so i do think there are very real and valid arguments for keeping him in triple a a little bit longer but at the same time it's like I'm not going to say doubted, but been like hesitant when talking about Holiday since the night he was drafted. Literally since the night he was drafted. I've always been so hesitant when talking about Holiday, but look at what he kept doing. He proved this organization wrong. They did not expect them. They've come out and said they did not see him ending the year in AAA. I think him ending the year in AA was probably best case scenario for this organization last year. And he exceeded all those expectations. So I'm I'm putting my money on he makes the team opening day. And Mike Elias is already on uh, on the record as saying he has a very good chance of making the team out of spring training. So that is a pretty good sign as well. Um, I'll go on to the next question from Charles, who said, I've heard multiple writers say that they predict when Holiday, speaking of, joins the Orioles, he will move Gunner to third. Do we disagree with that? I think Gunner stays and I is Charles and Holiday moves to second. What do we think, Zach? I think that they're going to move him around a little bit. Um, so holiday is probably going to play some second gunner is probably going to play third sometimes with holiday at short, but I don't necessarily see it as automatic that holiday is going to move shortstop or move Henderson off the shortstop. Cause number one, if there's someone in the organization now who could do that, it's Joey Ortiz. And until Ortiz is traded, you got to figure out where he fits in somewhere. So if you, and this is very possible that next year at some point, Jackson holiday and Joey Ortiz are on the everyday roster. Ortiz is probably getting most of the starts at shortstop with Holiday over at second. And I think that what we saw this past year is that the Orioles are content to kind of use Gunner in a hybrid role. Um, so that could mean that some nights you have that double play combination of Holiday and Henderson. And then some nights they're both on the left side of the infield. If I had to guess right now, I think that if Joey Ortiz is not around, and you still you go into next year with Jordan Westberg as one option at second base and Jackson Holiday in that Adam Frazier role, that Holiday is going to play second more often than not. 
but there's other factors that there's other factors that could change that. Yeah, I think Holiday's at second base as well. Um, Gunner's going to be a good shortstop. He's also going to be a good third baseman. If that's where he ends up, either whichever position he ends up at, I think a lot of this obviously depends on what the plan is for these guys in Norfolk. Like, if you want Kobe Mayo at third base and he can successfully transition to the big leagues, honestly, a Kerstad, Holiday, Gunner, Kobe infield kind of makes me tingly all over right now. Um, if Mayo's moved or ends up at first base or even in the outfield, like, and Joey Ortiz is your guy, then Ortiz is at short, Gunner's at third, Holiday at second. We don't know how this infield is going to shake out, obviously, over the next year or two, but I do feel confident that not looking ahead to like five years from now, but just looking ahead to when Holiday makes his debut whenever it is next year, I think he's predominantly your second baseman at the major league level. The mistletoe margarita, the Scrooge driver, the North Pole punch, the holidays call for cocktails. So get everything you'll need for them delivered with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. So what's it gonna be? Classics like Bullet Bourbon, Don Julio Reposado, or Kettle One, or maybe something new. Find it all on Drizzly where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered for any holiday festivity. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com slash play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Yeah, I agree. And his offense is so good and developed so quickly that his defense has lagged behind. It's not that it's not developing. It's just, what do you expect? You know, as you go up in levels, uh, the game moves faster, guys hit the ball harder. And and that's going to be something, obviously, he's going to work and improve on. But I think the way that Gunner has improved, even from 2021 to 2022, he made a huge leap defensively. And then uh, last year to this year as well, and even throughout the season, as we talked about previously, I think Gunner is pretty deserving of at least to begin the first half of next year to be the regular everyday shortstop, we know that they're going to bounce people around. So that's not to say that he just will only play that position, but I think Holiday's going to start out as a second baseman with Ortiz and Henderson available. And I think Kobe Mayo is going to play third base at least part of the time, at least. So I think as Buck Fiden says here, Gunner shortstop, Holiday second base, Kobe Mayo third base at some point. That is going to be run out there in 2024, and that's going to be a game I will not want to miss. We'll go to this question now from Tony B., who wants to know, where do we see Enrique Bradfield Jr. starting and ending next year? I'll let Nick take that one first. I wanted to be super aggressive with this one, 
but I want to rein in a little bit and say he starts back in high A because he only had a couple of games there, and he ends the year in triple A. If he has a very good year, and pending on what the major league roster looks like at the end of next year, maybe a major league call up at the end of the year, kind of use that speed in the playoffs. I don't know. Um, Honestly, though, I I think where he ends up depends on what the Orioles want to do with the bat and how he responds. I I really love Baseball America had an article a couple weeks ago, I think, and they said in that piece, just kind of talking about Bradfield and how he could be a guy who is not a unicorn, but a really rare player in today's game. And maybe he doesn't need the power. I know a lot of people was like, well, it'd be nice if hit for a higher average or hit for more power this year. Yeah, it's great, but it's his draft year. So I don't really care about the numbers too much. And of course, even if he hits for high average, but there's no power, people are going to ask, well, is he going to hit home runs? Bradfield could be that guy that doesn't need to hit home runs uh, with his speed and defense. They're both, I mean, some outlets had him 80 grade speed, 80 grade defense, two 80 grade tools coming out of the draft. That's a rarity. Uh, so I, I think, you know, depends on what the Orioles want to do with him. If they want to get more out of him, which I think they think they can. Why did they take him when they did? Probably because they think they can get more out of that bat. And if they can be not slow play him, but if they could be more methodical in his development, then they're going to be okay with having him sit back a little bit longer down in the minors and getting more out of that bat. Or they just be super aggressive with him and say, hey, we're going to lean into your speed and your defense and whatever we get out of the bat, it's great. It's a bonus. I don't think anyone could say it any better than that. I agree. He's going to start in high A and end the year in triple A and be an option for a postseason roster as the the guy on the bench that can provide the burst of speed be the Jorge Mateo of uh of the year and yeah I think Nick nailed it so I'll I'll stop there yeah I agree with both of you I think he starts the year back at Aberdeen and then ends in Norfolk it does help that Norfolk season extends a few weeks longer than the other affiliates and I also think that because of his speed and defense the Orioles would feel comfortable playing him in Norfolk for the last couple weeks, knowing that even if the bat isn't quite there yet, that the glove work is going to be there. Cause I'm pretty confident it will be the triple a level. And then, yeah, maybe that does open the door to him having some reserve role in postseason. Like it. Uh, David Adams, frequent person with questions. Uh, I don't believe the Orioles can or should roster all four of the following players, Ryan Mountcastle, Ryan O'Hearn, Anthony Santander, and Heston Kerstad. Bob, do you agree? Yes or no? And if you can only roster three of them, what is the best approach? I agree and disagree at the same time to an extent. I disagree. I think they absolutely can um, put out a roster with all four of those guys on it at the same time. I don't necessarily necessarily think they should. Um, I think if you're going to only stick with three of them, I think Ryan, Ryan O'Hearn is obviously the odd man out at this point because, I mean, he can't really hit left-handed pitching. And while Mountcastle crushes lefties and is not quite as good against righties, I just think the upside is better there and he's under control longer. So I think if you can get something in return – for O'Hearn, maybe like a trade for a solid reliever, one for one. It doesn't even have to be a prospect. I think you do that. But I think even at the beginning of the year, I wouldn't be surprised if O'Hearn is still sticking around and, and he's a guy that just is like, 
I don't know, Ramon Arias this year, where it's like we thought he was probably going to be traded to make room. He wasn't. And maybe he'll be traded before the deadline or, or maybe he'll just stick around and who knows if there's an injury, he can step in. I doubt he would make it to Rivers again after, after his year last year, but yeah, that, that's a good question. And it's one of a million reasons why this offseason is going to be interesting because there are so many ways to go with things. The Orioles showed us last year that they're willing to carry, you know, a lot of roster spots using players that at first glance seem like they're very similar to each other and too similar to each other in some cases. And that's what you have here, particularly with Santander, Kerstad, and O'Hearn. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. I would say that, yes, the Orioles can roster all four guys because they've shown us before it. They can do something similar and make it work. Whether or not they should, I think, comes back to what you think is going to happen at first base with Mountcastle and O'Hearn. Does the post-injury Ryan Mountcastle of massing left-handed pitching, doing a little bit better against right-handers and better strike zone judgment carry over in the next year? Do Ryan O'Hearn's, you know, improvements over his last few seasons in Kansas City carry over? If so, you're keeping him around because he's on the strong half of the platoon. Um, he's going to be in the lineup most nights. So that's something you're going to have to figure out. But if you don't think that one of those two guys can sustain the good parts of their 2023 seasons, then you probably move on from them. But of course, as I say that, now you're opening the door that if you let Ryan Mountcastle go, Kobe Mayo is probably your best option to replace him internally. And I know Mayo gives you more defensive versatility, but he's going to get the pass at first base. So there's a lot of ways you could move that around. But my guess is right now, the all four of them are probably back at the start of next year. Yeah, I'm not going to be mad if all four are back. You can... You know, you can mix and match these guys, and we know the Orioles are going to. I think if if one does have to go, like Ryan O'Hearn was, I kind of agree. Ryan O'Hearn was a great asset to this team this year, and I think for what his role was and what the team needed him for, he was great at that. But if you're only going to keep three, I do think he's the odd man out. You know, Mountcastle, I don't know if Ryan Mountcastle is a long-term piece in Baltimore, to be honest but I do think he's going to be a valuable player for at least the next year or two in the system, potentially a gold glove winning first baseman. Now who had a very good second half once the vertigo issue was fully behind him. I think can we, if they do it, I, I understand why, but can we stop trying to trade Anthony Santander this off season? Like I, I want that bat in this lineup. Uh, I really, really love having him in the system. Curse that I don't think is going anywhere. Like I could see Cowser being traded. I could see Beavers being moved. I could see any outfield prospect being moved, but not Kerstad. I think this organization is fully behind him and has big hopes and dreams for this left-hander. They really didn't play him out in the outfield when he got called up, which I understand why you don't want to put a rookie out there with, you know, definitely not elite defensive skills out there in the outfield. Uh, but you don't want to put him out there when you're fighting for a playoff spot. So I understand that hopefully a full off season in preparation for more outfield time, Helps and the organization feels more comfortable putting him in the outfield. But even if not, first base DH, you rotate him around. Um, I think you can make it all work. 
but yeah, I'd say if one goes, it's it's definitely O'Hearn. Before I read Matt's question asking for an AFL update, uh, I'll bring up Adit's question here. Thoughts on the waiver claim of Tucker Davidson? Left-handed pitcher, I think mostly a reliever, pitched for the Braves, maybe the Angels, but he was claimed off of waivers from the Royals. Uh, what do we got? What do you think of this, Nick? I mean, I'm never going to question this organization picking up a relief pitcher off waivers. Uh, they're pretty good at that. I know we were kind of talking beforehand, you know, is he a guy who they try to slip through waivers again, potentially later in the offseason? We'll see. Uh, I know, uh, shout out to Connor Newcomb, Locked on Orioles. I know he put out some some tweets and some others were looking at the you know splitter that he added this year and how successful that pitch was. So clearly the Orioles saw something they like. I mean, I don't know too, too much about him other than that. I uh, haven't really watched a lot of Tucker Davidson uh, pitch over there at Kansas City, but it, the Orioles are already being aggressive going after guys off the waiver wire, uh, at least to stash away for right now, just in case. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued. It never hurts to go out and get a reliever off the waiver wire at this point in the offseason, especially when you're able to get another left-handed option in there. What stands out to me, and I'm, I'm looking at MLB trade rumors right up this move, is the fact that he did a very good job last year limiting hard contact, uh, placing the 81st percentile, 44.2% ground ball rate. He had a low walk rate. One thing that is worth considering, um, he didn't strike a lot of batters out, but because he was out of options, he spent most, most of the year in the major leagues, struggled for two bad teams, the Royals and the Angels. Um, Maybe a little bit more development time helps him. Uh, you don't have a lot of roster flexibility because he is out of options. But if this is someone that you know sticks on the 40-man, I'll be interested to see what he gives you in spring training. If you can sneak him through the waiver wire and you keep him in the organization, worst-case scenario, you've got more left-handed bullpen depth at Norfolk to start the year. And who knows? Maybe this is another in the line of CNL Perez, Danny Cologne moves that flew somewhat on the radar at the time. But you look back at the end of the year and you feel like it's good that it worked out the way it did. Yeah. As I was saying before we started, uh, you know, it seems like every year Elias will just grab someone off waivers right as the season ends or even before free agency opens up. I know Cole Saucer was one of those a few years ago and then ultimately he was traded with Tanner Scott for uh, Judd Fabian and nobody else. Um, I think Ryan O'Hearn, speaking of him, he was picked up very early off of waivers as well last offseason. So we'll see. You know, maybe he's uh, we can pull a Tampa Bay Rays and make a, a struggling veteran pitcher into like a dominant reliever as they did with Robert Stevenson. Um, but if he can do the splitter slider combination and and keep the walks under control, get ground balls, then I think he could be valuable. Maybe a better version of Bruce Zimmerman, if nothing else. But now I will transition to Matt's question, which is, I was trying to give you guys time to pull up the stats in case you needed to. Could you guys do an AFL update, like how the O's players are doing? I I, don't, I feel like the AFL was canceled this year, but what do you think, uh, <laughs> Nick? Uh, I mean, it's definitely nothing super standing out. Uh, like, T.T. Bowens has had some ups and downs, some good numbers, some bad numbers. Definitely showing off some power. It's good to see there. Like 
you know, Rhodes and Cook and Pavoloni aren't really doing too much right now, statistically speaking, at least. Zach Peak had a great outing, I think, yesterday or Tuesday night, like three shutout innings or so. Uh, Trey McGill also had a couple shutout innings in that. He's kind of been up and down. Carlos Tavera started out very well. And then I think walks like four guys in less than an inning of work. And I don't know what happened there. They don't stream every single game. Uh, I try to catch some streams, but um, yeah, don't really get to watch too much. Don't get a ton of stat cast data there. So it's it's not been uh, the hype machine like we had last year with uh, Heston Kerstad. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely nothing jumps out at me statistically. And for various reasons we talked about in our last show, you got to take Arizona Fall League stats as a huge grain of salt. Uh, but just a couple of things to note. Trey Mago's performance so far has been interesting. Uh, if you look right now, his he's coming off a solid stint at the end of the season when he came back from Tommy John surgery. And for the most part, that has carried over to the Arizona Fall League. And I think what's interesting to follow about him at this point is that he is Wool 5 eligible this offseason. He's a lefty, someone that People thought could break through as a major league pitcher or a starting pitcher for the Pirates before he got hurt. Now, Pirates were a bad team at that point, and they still are, but it's worth considering this is someone that some people thought had back-end starter potential. So, so far, he's kind of making a case for himself to get protected for a Wolf 5 spot. I think the Carter Balmer going out with such limited professional experience to this point and holding his own against this level of competition is a very encouraging sign. So those would be my general takeaways to this point. And all these pitchers have Forrest Herman there working with them directly. So that's even better. That's, that's, I think the most important part about that, their experience down there in Arizona. Yeah. The pitching has definitely been better than hitting John Rhodes is batting and everyone knows I love the guy, but Adding 104 after 48 plate appearances, Billy Cook, 156, Connor Pavloni, 135, T.T. Bowens, 200, but he's got two doubles and three home runs, so at least some pop there. But yeah, Carter Baumler, 15 strikeouts in 10 innings against this level of competition in this environment. I think that's great. Uh, Trey McGow, he's he's been really good as well. I mean, he's only got three walks to 11 strikeouts over over eight innings. Zach Peek as Nick mentioned had a really good outing to lower his ERA to a much more respectable number. Peter Van Loon has struck out 11 in seven innings, and we don't need to talk about Carlos Tavera right now. But um, yeah, I think the pitching is much more encouraging than hitting uh, when it comes to the AFL. We'll go to this question now from David, and he wants to know if you could prioritize, if you could sign one free agent to a three to four year deal, which position? would you prioritize? And I'll let Bob start with this one. Uh, pretty easy choice. Cause I feel like uh, position player wise, I'm only signing a short term deal uh, because there's so much young talent in the minors. I'm not trying to block anyone on a long-term deal. Um, relievers. I'm really never in favor of a long and three, four years. Isn't necessarily that long, but a contract like that for a reliever, unless maybe it was Josh Hader, but I, it's starting pitcher, I think, fairly obviously. But for you, who are you going to get on a three to four year deal that's actually pretty good? You know, Aaron Nola, Jordan Montgomery, those guys are going to get at least five, six years. I think Sonny Gray is an option for a three to four year deal, probably, hopefully, three with his age. But I'd love to snag one of, well, I think uh, Yamamoto is going to a big 
big market. So I'd love to snag the left-handed pitcher coming uh, from Japan, Shoto Imanga, Imananga, uh, to a three- or four-year deal for a big price because I think I'd love to really get into that market, and I think he's a, a really good pitcher and left-handed to boot. So either Sonny Gray or Ima, I have to get used to saying his name, Imanaga. Yeah. Um, so actually, looking at this, I'm going to kind of combine David's question with Ben's question here. The next one says, in his was, the Orioles either sign a solid number three starter or two good setup men for the pin, assuming we have some confidence that all these hypothetical signings would fill those roles well, which would you prefer? I want to kind of combine those two, and we're an hour into this and have uh, <laughs> a lot of questions left to go. So this is going to like open up a an entire episode here so we don't need to dive fully into this but we can kick it off and then maybe dive into this more later on but uh honestly i the orioles are not going to go this direction i don't i don't see them going this direction at all but just to throw this out there think about it let it marinate maybe until next week but i'm saying deal hall and tyler wells it wouldn't be an orioles offseason if we didn't talk about deal hall and tyler wells and what their roles are going to be Dave Tyler Wells has proven he can be a very good starter and he's proven he could be a very good reliever. DL Hall has had two different instances of success in the bullpen at the major level. Both these guys were two of the bright spots on the pitching side of things in that series against Texas. So now my thing would be, all right, you don't have Felix Batista next year because Tommy John surgery. You have a lot of question marks in that bullpen. Can you count on Dylan Tate? Is he coming back? Is he going to be healthy? So many question marks elsewhere in the bullpen. Is this team going to rely on you know Michael Bauman? So many other questions. Why not keep DL Hall and Tyler Wells? DL Hall, your late inning guy. Tyler Wells can give you some length out of the bullpen. That fortifies your bullpen. And for once, just invest in the rotation. Go out and sign. You don't need to get Aaron Nola. We know that they're not going to sign Aaron Nola, but you can find this year's um, uh, Nathan Evaldi or Zach Eflin. Right? Spend just a little bit more money the under the radar signing you can trade. I know pitchers literally cost multiple arms and legs, very good arms and legs. Even in the off season, the price is going to be very high, but we have the capital trade for a starter, sign the under the radar guy, keep hauling wells in the bullpen. It's not going to solve everything, but I kind of like that. Not going to lie. I'm open to different, you know, variations of that, but just something I've been thinking about for a while now. I, I'm kind of on the same page as Nick here. If you're going to go that route, first of all, to take the question initially from David, I'm going to prioritize pitching over offense because I don't think you really need to make that kind of commitment anywhere um, in your lineup right now. But if I'm going to look at starting rotation or bullpen, I'm going to go starting rotation for the reasons that Nick mentioned and the fact that I think it's easier to replicate what the Orioles have done in the last few years with finding success off the waiver wire for relievers over a 50, 60 inning sample size during a season than it is to pick up a starting pitcher off the scrap heap and have him give you 170 good innings, which in today's baseball is pretty solid for a starting pitcher. So that would be the approach I would take to look at Ben's question. Yeah, I agree with that when it goes to Ben's question and also there's no reason they can't acquire a starting pitcher and a couple of relievers this offseason. Why limit yourself to one or the other? So well, I guess we'll move now to Bobby Jones, who wants to know a realistic return for any package involving some combination of Urias, Norby, Ortiz, Hayes, and Beavers. 
that seems like it's a, a little in depth for for just a mailbag. We will kick that down the road to I think we're doing an off season preview next week. Um, I think that was originally a plan. We'll see what happens. So we'll save that one, Bobby. It was a good question, but it's a lot to think about. So I'll just go down if you guys don't mind to my next question here, who, which is also from Ben. Thank you for all the questions, Ben. Who are the 2024 breakout Orioles minor leaguer and major leaguer? If we could predict that, have some fun here. I'll start the minor leaguer. I believe is going to come from the 2023 draft class. Um, Jackson Ballmeister could be that guy if he comes in and pitches really well at, let's say, two, perhaps three levels. He could be that guy. But I've also really got my eye on Matt Horvath. He just seems like the kind of player that is going to take to the system quickly. He's got solid tools across the board. And if he can hit and answer some questions about either answer some questions about where he's going to play defensively or so that he's a capable player at outfield spots, including center field, as well as on the dirt, that's going to do a lot for his prospect stock. And he might be one of those guys that if he puts all of that together this time next year, we're talking about him as a back-end top 100 prospect. I don't think that's beyond his skill set. So I would go him in the minor leagues. And then in the major leagues, it's a little tough to define breakout, but I'm kind of tired of doubting Dean Kramer. He just gave you 170 pretty good innings of baseball this year. If he were on the Brewers, the Marlins, or the Mariners, we would probably be talking about him as like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go out and get a guy like that? I think Dean Kramer is going to go out next year, and it's not going to be a Cy Young season, but it's going to be something very similar to what you got this year, and we can kind of put these questions to bed. I like the Dean Kramer shout. Um, I'm so back and forth on Dean, but then when I hear people talk glowingly about him, just the soft spot opens up in my heart for him. I hope he can break through. Um, yeah, it is kind of hard to define breakout in the major league side of things, but I my first thought was Heston Kerstad. Just I think the power is going to play extremely well in the majors. I think he's going to see a lot of time starting time next year. He got tremendous experience this year being on the big league roster those last few weeks, got to be in that clubhouse and that dugout for the playoff series. I, I think the strikeouts are going to continue to not be much of an issue for him, at least you know, someone, a power hitting corner outfield player. They're not going to be that much of an issue. I think he's more athletic than what people give him credit for. And he's probably going to firmly be in the mix for AL rookie of the year next year on the minor league side of things. Zach Stolmine. I went Matt Corvath as well. Like, Three levels last last year after being drafted, 12 extra base hits, five home runs in 22 games, 19 walks, 14 for 15 in stolen base attempts. The numbers were awesome. Uh, the positional versatility, we know the Orioles love that. I honestly think that Jake Cunningham was my favorite pick of the 2023 draft value-wise, but I think Horvath honestly has the potential to emerge as like the gem of this draft class. Uh, and digging even deeper, I think – like a long shot breakout. I'm going, I've said his name before. I want to keep saying it until it either happens or he flames out and proves me wrong. But Anderson De Los Santos, if you want to dig deep, I'm going him. I think he repeats Del Marvin next year. The bat explodes and he's a consensus top 25 guy in the system by the end of next year. Yeah. I love the horror bath pick and, and Anderson De Los Santos was one of the names I was considering. Could we see like a Daryl Hernandez type repeat of Del Marva for him? I feel like, next year so yeah i love that pick for me i think it's 
we're at the point now where the international presence is here. I mean, it's, you know, it's creeping up. We've got guys in double A with Ben Cosme, hopefully starting next year in double A and Basayo already there. But I feel like we're at the point now where every year a player that starts in Delmarva from the international side of things is going to break out, maybe not to the same extent as Basayo did this year, but I could see Anudis Mordan, Aaron Estrada, Anderson Daler Santos, Leandro Arias, Thomas Sosa, Brahilin Tavera. One of those guys is going to really take off. For me, it's Thomas Sosa. Just seeing the reports of his exit velocities and the way he improved from his DSL year to the FCL year, I feel like something clicked for him and he's going to take that next step as a uh, power corner bat in the outfield. And Thomas Sosa, get ready to uh, be a fringe top 100 player this time next year. Good choices. I'm going to go um, kind of back to the major league side. I did not question. pick a major league breakout. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I'm going to say Kobe Mayo. I'm just going to say Kobe Mayo makes the Major League roster opening day. Starts at third base on opening day. Doesn't play every day at third base, but he bounces around third base, plays some right field, first base, DH, and he wins the Rookie of the Year. So Jackson Holiday, slide slide on over. You can take second place this time. I, I Maybe not that dream of a scenario for Mayo, but I do think he's going to be playing the majority of his season in the majors and break out in a big way. Good choice on the Major League side as well. I'm going to go to this question now from Justin Daly. He wants to know, would you take a flyer on Craig Kimbrell? I'll start with Nick. Mm, yeah, like I think it's maybe ask me in two months. Um, a little too close to him kind of blowing up there against uh, Arizona. So, yeah, I mean, he is a veteran that probably around, what, $10 million maybe next year? Like, But – is he the guy you want to bring in to kind of stabilize the bullpen? I don't know. I, I just think maybe it's a little too close to watching like Alec Thomas taken deep the other night uh, to, for me to like accurately uh, assess that question right now. I mean, I, if they brought him in, I would trust the front office that they yeah. had a reason, but for me, it, it's not, it's not the one it's the ain't This ain't it for me personally. I think you could find comparative value on the waiver wire, or for much cheaper than that, you know. So if you sign him for $10 million, you're going to be less eager to cut him when he sucks in May or June. I'd rather sign a guy, Mark Melanson, or someone like that for like a couple million. And if it's not working, you have no problem getting rid of him. Yeah, I kind of agree with the two of you. I think that that one-year price tag for Kimbrel is a little high. And there's been several points in the last few years where I've written off Craig Kimbrell. He was really bad in 2019 with the Cubs. 2021 was just his last full season after that, or his next full season after that. He was dominant with the Cubs, then got traded to the White Sox and was terrible. I thought it was over then. Now he's put together back-to-back solid seasons. But as Nick just pointed out, there's a bad taste in my mouth from his NLCS performance and. I feel like eventually my thought that him retiring and being one of those guys that we spend 10 years arguing about this Hall of Fame case is not too far off. In the yeah, we'll, we'll see what they do with the bullpen. But uh, to dream a little bit here from Yoni, would love to hear you guys updated dream nine-man lineup from players from players currently in the system right now, your dream nine-man lineup. This is a fun one. Bob, what do you got? 
this is easy and, and I could probably do a whole 26 man roster, but um, I will say Adley Rushman behind the plate at catcher. I'll give Samuel Basayo first base to maintain a uh, positional flexibility. You don't want to lose that, that DH spot. So I'll put him at first base. I'll put Jackson holiday at second. I'll put Gunnar Henderson at short. I'll put Kobe Mayo at third. I'll put Colton Kowser in left. I will put Enrique Bradfield jr. In center. And I'll put Dylan Beavers in right with Heston Kersad rounding out at DH. So I'm going to go with most of what Bob had, but I think I'm actually going to switch Kerstad and Visayo, figuring that the wear and tear of being a defense more than a first baseman will help him will help keep him fresh behind the plate. But otherwise, I think that's a pretty solid dream nine, and I'll take that. I got Adley behind the plate. Kobe Mayo at first base. Don't kill me. Jackson Holiday at second. Uh, Joey Ortiz at short. Gunner at third. Enrique Bradfield in the left. Cedric Mullins in center. Uh, I know some people out there are ready to cut him, release him after the season. Um, I'm still a big believer in Mullins. Uh, Kerstad in right. And then DH, Anthony Santander slash Basayo, who's DH catcher, you know, first base a little bit when Kobe needs a day off. Uh, and then Jordan Westbrook still in the roster as the super utility guy. I'll take another one from Yoni. What major areas do you see the new Dominican Academy helping out in development? And I know Michael Elias recently mentioned that it will be open this year at some point to be used. So very exciting. What do you guys think, Zach? It's going to help on the obvious recruitment aspect of things, being able to show players in the Dominican Republic that facility. But I think it's going to be really crucial in development over the offseason. And I would be curious... I don't know if after the first year that it's open, especially because we're not sure quite yet when it's going to open, if we'll see returns, but I'd be really curious to see what kind of work can take place there in the off season for players that live in Dominican and how much they're able to improve from the off season to the beginning of the following spring training. So aside from helping to bring players into the system, I think it's going to be really crucial in that respect. Yeah. It's just going to take, the development of the international pipeline to another level. Uh, we're just starting to see some of those notable prospects from that first international class under Elias and Kobe Perez kind of emerge. And so imagine what the talent that we're going to start seeing from the Orioles once that they're establishing themselves, creating these connections, signing every single year, the signing bonus to the top guy is bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's going to continue to grow. And like Zach said, you can show off this brand new complex, these kids, I'm sure it makes a difference. It's going to be a good selling point. Information doesn't really flow out of the DR, so can't really, I guess, get too specific here with players and, and everything like that. But hopefully it's just one more thing that this org- that keeps this organization kind of at the forefront of you know player development. But at the end of the day, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. I hope I'm fascinated by, you know, what, what do they do as far as like the off the field stuff, you know, English classes and just life skills, high fit getting these guys to finish high school like anything like that i'm interested in that aspect as well but at the end of the day like you can have the state-of-the-art facility but if you don't have the the right people running it then it's worthless then i think that's kind of honestly a little bit more important and hopefully uh the orioles are doing right in that aspect too yeah i'll just echo those sentiments we know it's going to help we don't know specifically what it's going to do for development but we know it's going to be a great recruiting tool and just Great for the organization. Great investment, no matter no matter how much it costs. 
So Mark Gray Mendez, uh, former guest of the show, we had him on to wrap up Bowie season. He has a great question for us, but do either one of you feel like you can take it tonight or do you want it in our off-season preview next week? Table that one. All right. That's, so that's, that's a whole episode. It's that a great is question. A awesome question that I really want to do some homework for and come up with some good stuff. So Mark, we promise you we are going to address this in a future episode, probably next week, and we'll have a detailed answer for you here because it's a fun question and a fun scenario. But I'll just jump down to what's the last question on my list, which comes from Tulsi. Would you be in favor of bringing Ryan Flaherty back on a one-year prove-it type contract? Uh, I'll start with Bob on this one. Personally, no. I mean, if this was going into 2023, I would do it in place of like a, a Kyle Gibson type one year, 10 million signing. But I, I don't know. I saw enough from uh, Jack Flaherty this year after trading for him. And I just think we're at a point where we can, we can and must do better than that when it's coming to like bringing someone in. I don't know. I feel like they had their chance to work with them unless they really think they can unlock something with the full off season of working with them. Then maybe, but personally, it's a no for me. Yeah, I'm good. He can he can walk. Um, <clears throat> like he tried. I, I appreciate the the trade and bringing him in and hoping that would work out. Uh, it didn't, and it's it's fine. I think you move on. We got to set our sights uh, higher with these pitchers that they decide to bring in. I think. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think you set your sights higher, and you're going to be able to find someone that gives you good Jack. Well, maybe not peak Jack Flaherty production, but the best you saw of Flaherty over the course of 2023, you can make that production up somewhere else um, and not have the risk of him coming back and struggling the way he did down the stretch. Um, uh, one more, I think, kind of hard-hitting question here, looks like, based on this list. But uh, from Ben E, given the past trend of Orioles free agent acquisitions, what is one value-type position player uh, you'd prefer they target and one value type pitcher. So he was thinking in the 10 to 15 million or less per year range. Zach, who are you thinking about early on? I haven't taken a deep dive yet into the free agent market, but I feel like if there's a corner bat that can be a better and more consistent version of Aaron Hicks, that's a useful target because Aaron Hicks, you know, had his moments this past year for the Orioles. But if you can find someone who has more range in the outfield and maybe a little bit more power, not necessarily a lot more power because that's regular player at that point, but who gives you a little bit more power, gives you the versatility to move between the two corners and can handle left field as well as he can handle right field, that's something that I would look at. And then maybe there is an argument for bringing back a Kyle Gibson-type pitcher. Um this offseason, in addition to someone who's going to go at the top of your rotation, we're bringing someone like that back in case you decide to go with Tyler Wells and D.L. Hall in the bullpen, and you don't know just yet how far you can stretch out John Means next season. I will say for position player, I think the Orioles might want to add a veteran right-handed outfielder that can mash a little bit. So I'll say either Teoscar Hernandez or Adam Duvall. And on the pitching side, Tyler Maley is a free agent. He's still only 29. He's still recovering from Tommy John. He should be back sometime in 2024. I wouldn't be opposed to signing him to like a 
a two-year, $30 million deal or something like that, then maybe he can give you a boost down the stretch and for 2025 as well. Also, a couple other options I see are Wade Miley. I know he's 37 and it didn't work out the first time he was with the Orioles, but he's been pretty consistently good the past few years in Milwaukee. Wouldn't mind bringing him in. And maybe Martin Perez, who got $20 million to go back to Texas after a fluke year, but he won't cost that much this time around. So maybe you can bring him in and just get a guy that's going to give you that mid fours, maybe lower fours ERA and some innings and he's lefty instead of a righty. So those are my options. I like it for me on the hitter side of things, the bargain bin doesn't look super great. Uh, just kind of doing a passing through earlier today. I think these guys probably will, might go for a little bit more than like the, the bargain bin price, but I do like Tasker Hernandez as well. Uh, thinking someone like even like a Lourdes Goriel, maybe even, I don't know. I like Jock Peterson. I would not hate <laughs> bringing in Jock Peterson uh, onto this team, but there's enough left-handed power hitting you know, types like Jock uh, in the system already. I don't know. One of those guys, maybe uh, pitcher wise, there are definitely some more options. I know we looked at a few was that last week when we went over the, the Orioles review on Twitter and his polls that he had posted, we kind of folded those into the show. And I think he had a question, something about like Kenta Maeda, Michael Lorenzen, Seth Lugo, and someone else. I can't remember, but like which one of those guys would we sign thinking maybe bullpen usage as well. But Regardless, I think I said Kenta Maeda last week, but I think Zach really sold me on Seth Lugo. I think he went with him. And honestly, like he had a solid year with San Diego last year. He hadn't gone over 100 innings since 2018 and only started like seven games since then. And when he was with the Mets, he was pretty much predominantly a reliever. But he made 26 appearances last year, this past season with San Diego. All of them starts, 146 innings, nearly a three-war season. Great ground ball numbers, low walk numbers. Let the defense work behind you. Like, without doing a super deep dive on Lugo, uh, my initial takeaway is you know, if you're looking at the bargain bin, hopefully this won't be your top guy. But as a guy you bring on maybe later in the offseason, I would not be mad with Seth Lugo at all. I guess I'll go to my last question, and that that might be it, other than some silly questions. Actually, I'll do one silly one. Garrett asks, and I think I'm the only one that has played this game, but is Spider-Man 2 game of the year? and favorite Spider-Man suit out of the game. Uh, I haven't finished the game. I like the Venom suit that I just I just got to that point in the game. Um, it is my game of the year because I think it's the only game I've played this year, but it is an awesome game. I mean, I've started Baldur's Gate 3 to the point where I created my character, and that's it. Might have played some Fortnite and some, some MLB the show at some point this year, but my video game time is from October to March. So just getting into it, ask me before, right before the baseball season if I had any other good ones from 2023. Looking forward to Mario Wonder. But uh, Ben, the last serious question I have, asks, over under 30 million combined spent on free agents. Uh, Nick? Mm, well, you are correct that I've never played Spider-Man game. Uh, I actually just bought a video game last week for the first time in almost 15 years. It was the new NHL game. I'm a hockey. I'm a hashtag hockey guy now. Um, I'm going to say, as far as Ben's question as I was concerned, I'm going to say over. Uh, I'm going to be optimistic. Keep the train rolling here. Free agent signing. Hopefully, you spend a little bit more. But I'm thinking extensions as well. I don't think, given like Adley's you know, situation, catcher, all that, given Gunner's representation, uh, I don't think it's either of them. I'm not going to waste any energy, kind of waiting on 
to be those two guys this offseason. If it is, fantastic. I'm going to celebrate. But if not, hopefully down the road, I'd be fine with hopefully like a John Means extension or a Cedric Mullins extension, one of those two at least, and then give me uh, at least one decently sized free agent contract. And uh, I'll be happier. Not totally happy, but happier. Joey Ortiz, 10-year, $30 million deal? Let's go. Who says no? I'll drive the contract to him personally so he can sign it. I will take the over because I think it was Ben who actually pointed out in the Patreon chat that last year's cost, I don't remember the exact figure, was 32 or $34 million, and that was in an offseason where the Orioles didn't do much of anything. So I'll definitely take the over this year. I think a lot of their work is going to be done through trades. So, you know, maybe people could still be happy with an offseason if they don't spend $30 million on the free agent market specifically. But, yeah, I'll go over as well. I just feel like it's almost accidental to go over $30 million at this point in uh, Major League Baseball. Do we want to end with this last question from Ben, who <laughs> decided to turn this into from an hour to an hour and a half episode uh, with all of your, your questions? We're going to end it with Ben's uh Highest priority question of the night here. It's a uh, gummy worms or gummy bears. And I will say there's only one correct answer. It is gummy worms. Yeah, it is. Gummy, gummy worms was going to be my answer as well. Why have these little chewy bears when you can have a, a whole chewy worm? I mean, it's just <laughs> self-explanatory. I'll be the outlier here and go with bears. Maybe there's some like repressed memory in my mind, but I always think of gummy worms as a choking hazard. So I'll <laughs> take the bears. I personally feel like the gummy bears might be more of a tricking hazard, but that's a debate for uh, next week, potentially, when the off-season preview. My wife puts her gummy bears in the refrigerator, so they're a choking hazard and uh, potentially break your teeth. So, yeah, gummy worms. Well, tune in next week as we give the nutritional facts behind airheads and break (laughs) down whether or not trolls are a disgusting candy or if they actually taste good. In the meantime, you can follow us on X. Also, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. While you're browsing around the internet, head over to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com to check out the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, College Sports, and more. And while you're there, hop on the message board to join and discuss with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors to BSL. We will be back next week with our off-season preview. And if your question was not asked tonight, we will get to it next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening to tonight's episode. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds.